electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and the market is ripping today. We got better earnings, stronger retail sales, and a key drop in inflation expectations. Expected to keep the heat off the Fed at its next meeting. Two big questions now. Will gas prices stay down? And is uh, inflation or recession the bigger threat? And which one of them should investors expect and prepare for? We'll dive into that. Speaking of which, President Biden in Saudi Arabia to try to bring those oil prices down, but will it work? Meanwhile, his policy agenda back at home hitting a senatorial speed bump. We do have the latest. And we'll look at the next crop of earnings in a busy week next week on deck. We have three stocks to buy before those results and one to bail on. Three buys and a bail, Dom. Earnings edition. How's that market looking? Uh, The market's looking pretty good right now. It's green across the screen here. Across the board for the major indexes, the indices, so to speak. If you look at the Dow Industrials, 561 is the number we're at right now. That's how much we're up. 658 points to the upside was the high of the session. Meanwhile, the low was up 145 points, so tilted more towards the high end of that range right now, up one and three quarters percent. The S&P 500 level, 38.50, up 60 points, one and a half percent gains there. And the Nasdaq is lagging, if you want to call it that, up about 1.4 percent, 155 points higher. The composite is now 11,406. One place to keep a close eye on is, of course, energy with rising fuel prices, but of course also some of those mega cap names, especially in tech and communication services. Communication services over the last week, by the way, has been one of the worst performing sectors in the entire S&P. Meanwhile, today on this bounce that may snap a five-day losing streak for the S&P, if it holds, you are seeing the likes of Netflix, Meta Platforms, and Disney all outperforming on the session, up anywhere from 3 to 6% on the day so far. But just put it in context, on a year-to-day basis, Netflix has lost 70% of its value, Meta has lost half of its value, Disney has lost nearly 40% of its value. So some of the bounces today are coming in the most beaten-up names in that mega-cap industry territory. And then if you're going to look for the stocks that are in focus today, it's the banks. They have been for the better part of this week because earnings season really kicks off with those big banks. Now, two more reported today are the big ones. Citigroup is up 12% right now, better than expected profits and revenues. They're making more money on higher interest rates. They're also setting aside more money for possible bad loans in the future, as is, well, as, as is Wells Fargo. But generally speaking, the Wells Fargo mixed earnings report is still ending up with a gain so far today. They think credit losses could accelerate from here, but put the caveat that there were very low levels in terms of credit overall being a problem. So it could go higher. It shouldn't be big. But Wells Fargo also says that they are not seeing any material deterioration in their consumer or commercial business lines right now. Pay attention to that. And by the way, I'll point this out. Of the four big banks, Kelly, that have reported this week, only one company has beaten revenue estimates, and that is 
Citigroup. Wow. I'll send things back over to you. Just a striking jump in those shares in a very different tone than what we saw from uh, JPM and Morgan Stanley. Dom, thanks. All right. This week has been all about inflation, with some of the most important developments kind of flying under the radar. So let's quickly recap. The markets are looking much more relaxed about inflationary pressures, even as the official readings hit new highs. We have break-evens, the bond market's measure of inflation expectations, Those are down sharply. Commodity prices plummeting since the Fed's last meeting. Also plunging, gasoline prices. They're down almost 50 cents over the past month, one of the sharpest declines ever. As a result, a key breakthrough this morning, the University of Michigan's measure of consumer inflation expectations falling back below 3% on a three-year basis. Remember, the high reading last month prompted the 75 basis point rate hike from the Fed. Now, of course, we meanwhile have the CPI hitting a 41-year high this week, the producer price index jumping more than 11%. says not peaking, but the guess is, well, maybe it might. So what should the Fed's next move be? Let's ask Aneta Markowska. She's the chief financial economist at Jefferies. Aneta, great to see you. You've already ruled out a 100 basis point rate hike. Is that right? That's right. I I think uh, there is a very strong case to be made for not upsizing uh, the move this time. You know, a a month ago, we were very quick to upgrade our our call for the Fed. Um, But it really had less to do with the CPI and more to do with that Umish number when it jumped, you know, to 3.3 percent. That's what created the urgency to upsize the last move. You know, inflation sort of tells the Fed where they need to go ultimately, but inflation expectations tell them how quickly they need to get there. Uh, And there was a lot of urgency a month ago after that, you know, spike in inflation expectations. Since then, inflation obviously continues to be pretty ugly, but inflation expectations have moved down pretty decisively. It could be on the back of declines in gasoline prices, as you mentioned, but I think the Fed's basically done what they needed to do to restore credibility, and that now gives them a little bit more flexibility um, and I think rules out another um, you know, out, up, up, outsides increased uh, at the next meeting. What if they did only half a point? What would you, how would you feel about that? I, I think that's very unlikely. You know, they, they've guided very strongly and very decisively for 75. It, it would certainly be a surprise. I think if they did, you know, move by 50 basis points, we would have to worry again about inflation expectations moving back up and then ultimately forcing their hand. But but I think at this point, that's very unlikely. So it's it's funny that kind of, and we've seen this even in Google searches, that they're spiking for both inflation and recession at the same time. And it seems to be that we have only those two very bad outcomes to pick from. But when I sort of read through your thoughts and, the, and, and what's happened over the past month here, it's possible we could see more of a Goldilocks second half, isn't it? I mean, I don't want to sound too crazy, but this has been a big reset if gas prices stay down. And meanwhile, we got some better data on retail sales. You highlighted it this morning. I mean, a 38% gain since 2019 is extraordinary. It is extraordinary, and it highlights that actually a lot of these inflationary pressures that we're seeing are demand-driven. Um, but look, I, I actually I agree. I think we're setting up for a, a an, an environment that feels quite a bit better than than it did over the past six months. Um, if energy prices do stay here, you know, CPI is on track to be flat month over month in July, right? And so, if we continue to see similar nominal gains in income and in spending to what we saw in the first half. Suddenly, you're talking about real gains in consumption uh, and a real acceleration in both real consumption and GDP. So while the first half was very disappointing, you know, second quarter GDP will probably print around 1%. 
that's still very, very tepid, although not quite recessionary. But I think in the third quarter, we could see GDP back at three, three and a half percent if energy prices stay down here. So it will feel a lot better, right? We've been in an environment of rising rates, slowing growth momentum, deteriorating sentiment. And I think that could that could change to where we are in a, in a stable rate environment and growth momentum and sentiment that actually improve, uh, at least for the next quarter or two. Yeah, I guess the final piece of the puzzle is the labor market. And on that front, Larry Summers was um, out with some strong comments again today saying that basically the Fed is too sanguine to think that the unemployment rate will stay low and not rise. And obviously we know every time it's risen more than half a point, we're in recession and so on and so forth. I mean, do you think there's a Goldilocks outcome here where they're able to basically destroy job openings and slow wage gains without really creating uh, a much bigger slowdown in the labor market? I I don't think that's possible. I think at the end of the day, you know, if the Fed's serious about getting to 2% inflation, they're going to have to create a lot of slack in the labor market. You know, given the shape of the wage Phillips curve right now, Our estimate is that in order to get back to about three and a half percent wage inflation, which is consistent with two percent price inflation, you need to push unemployment to about six, seven percent. And that's what we think the Fed will ultimately do. Uh, We just don't think that that's imminent. We think that process is is still about 12 months away. And in the meantime, you know, this is still a very strong economy that that's actually going to be harder to put into a recession than I think many people think. Well, I feel less less excited about the back half if you think we're still going to be in recession sometime next year, no matter what. Yes, um, you know, but but certainly it could feel a lot better for the next several months. (laughs) Enjoy it while it lasts. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Annetta, we'll leave it there. Thanks for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Annetta Markowska of Jefferies. Now, the Dow and S&P are rallying today, trying to snap a five-day losing streak. Dow's up 576. But my next guest says investors need to prepare for this recession economy and that it's time to buy staples and names more resistant to a downturn. He also likes media names. Joining me now is Michael Yoshikami. He is the CEO of Destination Wealth Management. Michael, you want to just piggyback off of what Annetta was just saying and, and sort of the places you agree or maybe see things very differently? Well, I, you know, I think uh, what, I think what she's saying basically is a recession is coming, just not as soon as many people think. Yeah. And I'm of the that a recession is coming sooner um, than perhaps was um, just suggested. I think that um, you're not going to see the slack in retail for a month or two after um, you start to see these rather significant interest rate increases. Um, and while energy prices have come down, which is a positive, which certainly will help inflation, um, they're still at high points. We're still talking five, six dollar gal- gasoline. So Goldilocks is a nice thing to talk about. But I think that um, perhaps it's um, more appropriate to be a bit more conservative and not hope for Goldilocks but look at a base case scenario, significantly slowing uh, economy, if not recession. That's pointing you to names like Costco. We hear more and more people a fan of kind of hiding out there. Johnson and Johnson, too. Is that right? Yeah, I I think the way you want to do is you want to look for names that are going to be resistant uh, in some respects to uh, regardless of what happens with the economy. Um, And of course, it depends with every person's portfolio, what's appropriate for them. But names like Costco, for example, um, are going to be the places that people go um, when they're a bit um, stretched. I mean, that's why Costco is so popular. It's a discount brand. And then you have companies like Walt Disney, for example, that have uh, essentially cratered on, I think, probably CEO sentiment than anything else. And then mm-hmm. Johnson & Johnson is more of a staples company. 
as well as um, health care services. So um, I think dividends make sense in this environment as well. And I think that it's not the time to be a banking on a Goldilocks scenario. I think that's Boy, I would love that to be the case, Kelly, but I just think it's kind of dangerous to really go on that assumption just based on market sentiment in, in the last day or two. I mean, think where things were four days ago. No one was even talking about the word Goldilocks. So I think you shouldn't get we shouldn't get too excited about one data point. No, and I, I think I'm the only one who, who's probably uttering it now. <laughs> you know, most people, th- you know, we're seeing Wall Street estimates come down. It's all about recession. You know, everyone's, you know, yeah. commit- I, I, I totally take your point. Out. Let me just follow up on Disney for a second, because this one yeah. is not so much macro, but is super fascinating. It's the worst stock in the Dow this year, the worst on a three, six, 12 month right. basis. It's trading, I think, right. at prices. It was during the literal March 2020 nadir of the pandemic. And you think maybe yeah. it's a CEO issue there? It seems to me. uh, I I think theme park attendance is strong. I mean, I realize media sales is going to be impacted uh, by slowdown in the economy, but um, I'm I'm just wondering if they had um, leadership uh, that maybe was more universally appreciated by Wall Street. I realize uh, his contract, the CEO's contract, was just renewed by the board, but um, there's really a vision that people don't really quite see right now. past sort of the noise. And so for that reason, I think uh, that's why the stock's been suffering. But it's like you said, I mean, I don't see any reason why a stock um, like Disney should be trading where we were uh, right at the height of the pandemic. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, it's up 3% today. They just announced a big price hike for the ESPN streaming service. So we'll see how that goes over with consumers. Yeah. A final comment then, um, healthcare, United Health having a really strong day today, earnings and, and all the rest of it. That's been a popular area. Energy, a, a battleground right now. Any any kind of parting thoughts on those two areas? Yeah, I think the money's been made on energy at this point. Um, I realize that Warren Buffett's out there buying more Occidental, but I think that um, you know oil prices uh, spike based on what happened with the Russia situation. You see them coming down, and so I think that I wouldn't be a big buyer of energy names at this point. I think if you're moving more towards healthcare, media, defensive uh, names. Uh, defensive consumer names, I think you'd be better off than maybe trying to chase high prices because that's all going to fluctuate based on the price of oil. Yeah. All right, Michael, good to have you. Thanks for your time today. Thanks, Kel. Michael Yoshikami with Destination Wealth. Don't miss tonight's CNBC special, Taking Stock, the State of the Market at 6 p.m. Eastern. We've got stock picks from analysts and market experts, and we'll run through key corners of the market and economy. Again, that's tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, Senator Manchin steps in again, delivering another blow to President Biden's Build Back Better agenda. What are the sticking points? What does it mean for the midterms? We have that next. Plus, oil prices are front and center for the president's trip to Saudi Arabia. Arabia. Can he persuade the Saudis to ramp up production? And what's the fallout if he can't? And as we go to break, let's get a quick check on the markets. The Dow's up 581. Uh, the small cap Russells are the strongest performer, up 2.1%. The 10-year yield, 292. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM. 
a leading global asset manager. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane. Welcome back to The Exchange. As President Biden lands in Saudi Arabia to try to deal with the problem of high energy prices, there's another problem for him here at home. Senator Manchin now saying he won't support certain parts of the president's agenda, leaving Democrats in a precarious position ahead of the midterms. Elon Moy has the latest for us. Elon? Well, Kelly, the inflation numbers spooked Senator Manchin. Today, he called the 9.1 percent spike an alarming figure. And after it came out, he said he told Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer it's not prudent to move ahead with a trillion dollar tax and spending bill. Now, what he is willing to support right now, allowing Medicare to negotiate prescription drug prices and extending ACA insurance subsidies for two years. That means no tax increases for companies or individuals, including closing that loophole in the net investment income tax for certain pass-through businesses. But it also means no climate provisions, no clean energy tax credits, including for solar, and no credits for hydrogen battery cars. A source tells me electric vehicle tax credits were already out of the deal. Now, Manchin's fellow Democrats lamented his change of heart on Twitter. Senator Ed Markey wrote, Rage keeps me from tears. Resolve keeps me from despair. We will not allow a future of climate disaster. Now, what ultimately happens with this bill could end up shifting the dynamic around a separate bill to provide $52 billion to the semiconductor industry. Republicans have said they won't support money for chips as long as Democrats are pursuing that other bill. So, Kelly, maybe Manchin will make the choice for Democrats clear. Back over to you. So, Elon, you're saying it could actually increase the odds of the CHIPS Act passing? Quite possibly. Republicans Republicans feel that the reconciliation bill, as, as it's been called, is dead in the water. Maybe they're more willing to support chips. Hmm. We won't know for sure until everybody comes back next week and those negotiations continue. No, I hadn't connected those dots. It's a great point. Elon, thank you very much, our Elon Moy in Washington. My next guest is here to outline what this pushback means for taxes, clean energy, drug pricing, and Obamacare subsidies. Joining me is Dan Clifton. He's head of policy research at Strategus. Dan, it's great to have you. And uh, it seems like the only remaining items here would possibly be drug pricing and those Obamacare subsidies. Is that right? That would that would stay alive. Yeah, Kelly, I think it's important to understand the context of what is being discussed here. What Senator Manchin has said this morning on West Virginia Radio is that he's willing to wait and watch the inflation numbers come out when they're released in August and see what the Federal Reserve is doing before deciding whether to act on tax clean energy, drug pricing, and ACA, this so-called larger package. But that would require Congress passing that bill in September. And as you can imagine, with the elections approaching, it would become infinitely harder. So I don't want to say that this is totally dead, but it is near dead. And uh, my sense is that we're going to wind up positioning closer to a health care only bill and seeing what those possibilities are going to be. One other key point on this is that if you do not raise taxes this year, it is very unlikely that we're going to raise taxes for the next two years, particularly if the Republicans win the House, and possibly four years because the Republican majority will be so big. That also means that it's unlikely you're going to get significant changes on climate spending 
for that same time frame if the Republicans win. And I think that's where a lot of the panic is building in in the Democratic Party right now, given the nature of the urgent need to reduce emissions. Yeah. That then leaves us with health care only. Yeah, I'm sorry. Oh, well, I was just going to say on that, I am, I am a little surprised at the surprised reaction to this. I mean, yep. with inflation going where it is, with the numbers that we all can see in terms of D.C. and the midterms, did people really think there was a shot that this much larger bill was going anywhere? I mean, look at the reaction in the clean energy stocks, which are definitely acting uh, as if this is new information. Absolutely. And I, I just want to be clear. We had a really bad inflation report last month and Manchin doubled down and said, this is what I want to do. And we were surprised by it last month. And the argument was that those tax increases were going to reduce inflation. Hmm. So let's go ahead and do this. Now you get a similar inflation report, it's panic. And I think the change on the margin here, Kelly, is that you have a yield curve inverted, both the 210 and the 110. Pretty soon it's gonna be the three month and 10, uh, 10 year when the Fed acts. And so those recession risks are rising and you're asking to raise taxes on small businesses, US multinationals and high net worth individuals. And so what Manchin is basically saying is, I'm still for the clean energy. I'm just not for the tax increases that are required to pay for that clean energy. And that's the big change that we're seeing since the inflation report has come out. That's not going to get resolved in the next month or so. And that's why he's saying, let's focus on health care. He can actually claim that he's getting deficit reduction and that possibly limiting drug prices reduce inflation. I'm skeptical of that argument, right. but they can make that argument with a straight face. It, it, so would you say that becomes kind of the thing that gets out of the gate here is, and is it drug prices across the board or just allowing Medicare to cap drug prices? Yeah. So it's a, it's a really interesting proposal. It will allow Medicare to cram down drug prices, but that cram down doesn't start until 2026. Hmm. But it is a major change in how the drug pricing system would work. Before that cram down happens, you would have a cap on seniors out of pocket expenditures limited to $2,000. And when you do that, you actually create more demand for drugs starting immediately. And so it actually is positive for the pharma companies right at the beginning. But then it becomes pretty monstrous in the back end of the, in the back end of the 10 year budget window in terms of the cram down on their prices. And so I think the market has been somewhat uh, uh, ignoring the impact that that can have. They're saying, well, wake me up when we get to 2026. Right. But if something like that was to pass, it's a meaningful change in how drugs are priced. And I do think that it will start to be a headwind for the industry, at least over the, over the next year or so, as people start to look at what, what Congress actually did. What's driving this, Kelly, is that the ACA subsidies are going to go away at the end of this year. The health insurers need to price it now and they need to send their notices out. So you're going to have someone like 14 million people finding out that their premiums are going to go up. You're probably going to have 4 million people finding out that they're no longer going to be subsidized. If it happens. And those letters hit the third week of October, There's two weeks before midterm election. That's why Schumer's trying to get an agreement today and saying that that timeline is so pressing. We'll see. I mean, some of the progressive Democrats are not really on board with just doing health care only. They're upset and they want climate in there. So there's going to be some wrangling over whether they can even get the health care portion of this. Stuff. I just can't imagine those subsidies would go away. What, do you think the odds are better right. than 50 percent? I would. I, I would think so. Even if they have to compromise on drug pricing to get that through, wow. they, they can't walk out of here with nothing. And so, look, the betting markets have moved to about a 20 percent probability of something getting done. Some of that is based on the timing of the contract. 
But overall, uh, I, I can't see them letting that go away. I think cooler heads will prevail once the shock is over. Yeah. And it was shocked last night and into this morning amongst Democrats. And the progressives are not happy given that climate change, which is an urgent priority for them, may be off the table. I would argue once you clear this out of the way, though, you can actually set yourself up for bipartisanship because the Republicans want to be able to drill. Democrats are going to want some short-term extension of wind and solar. Maybe they can come together and do yeah. something that will help our partners in Europe, which are dealing with a big energy crisis. And that's ultimately what I think Senator Manchin is trying to gear up for in trying to set up some post-election bipartisan deal in the lame duck session of Congress. Clock is ticking. So many different factors here. Dan, thanks for unpacking it all for us. Good to see you. Great. Thank you for having me, Kelly. Dan Clifton of Strategus. Coming up, three buys and a bail ahead of next week's earnings bonanza. A quarter of the companies in the Dow are reporting. More than 60 in the S&P. And Gina Sanchez is here to set the scene. Plus, big tech is getting a boost today, but analysts have been slashing their price targets. We'll look at what Wall Street's worried about and which names are seeing the biggest cuts. And as we go to break, here's a look at the Dow heat map. Only two names are in the red today, and they are Travelers and PNG, some of the stronger names lately. United Health, Goldman, and JPM leading the way. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange. We're just off the session highs. Dow was up 657. We're still up 608. So it's a pretty impressive rebound here as we try to close out the week at 2% gain. The Chinese tech names are among the biggest laggards in the NASDAQ, though. Baidu, JD.com, NetEase, Pinduoduo, down in the 2% range after China just reported its weakest growth rate and more than two years after that zero-tolerance approach to the latest COVID wave. So that could be helping the NASDAQ underperform a bit today. Elsewhere, check out shares of Pinterest rallying after the journal reported that Activist investor Elliott Management has built up a stake of more than 9% in the company. Pins up 15%. Today's move has the shares back in positive territory for July and would mean the stock snaps a 12-month losing streak. Let's get to Courtney Reagan now for a CNBC News update. Courtney? Hi, Kelly. Good afternoon. Well, prosecutors in New York City are asking a judge today to dismiss the convictions of three men who spent decades in prison for the 1995 murder of a transit worker. The clerk died after his attackers squirted gasoline into his subway token booth and then ignited it with matches. That mirrored a scene in a movie that had been released days earlier. But Brooklyn's DA now says an extensive investigation revealed, quote, serious problems with the evidence in the case, including indications the men were coerced into confessing by a detective who had dozens of convictions overturned over the years. In Germany, an army officer has been sentenced to five and a half years in prison for planning to kill politicians. Prosecutors say he pretended to be a Syrian asylum seeker so that attacks would fuel anti-immigrant sentiment. And two months after it was the scene of what prosecutors are calling a racially motivated shooting massacre that killed 10 black people, the top supermarket in Buffalo is once again back in business. The company says it would take too long to build a new store because people in the community don't have many options for buying groceries. Tonight on the news, why prenups are now no longer just for rich people. That's at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Kelly, I believe we'll be seeing you. Back over <laughs> I look forward to hearing more about it. Courtney, thank you.
Coming up, pariah or partner? President Biden's meeting with the Saudi crown prince, putting him at odds with his campaign rhetoric. Will he actually get anything in return for the reputational risk? And before we head to break, let's get some show and tell, where we show you a chart and tell the story. Intel is the worst performer in the SMH ETF since the start of the pandemic. It's down 30% while NVIDIA and OnSemi have more than doubled, and it comes as U.S. semi companies await the fate of that long-delayed CHIPS Act. Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger was on Squawk Box this morning with some strong words for lawmakers. My message to uh, our congressional leaders is, hey, if I'm not done with the job, I don't get to go home. Neither should you. Do not go home for August recess until you have passed the CHIPS Act, because I and others in the industry will make investment decisions. And do you want those investments in the U.S.? Or are we simply not competitive in this to do that here? And we need to go to Europe or Asia for those. Welcome back. Oil prices back on the rise today. Still below $100 a barrel, though, and down 15% in the past month. President Biden is in Saudi Arabia today trying to get some more production from the Saudis to bring prices down significantly, substantially, further, permanently, we might say. Kayla Tausche is in Washington covering the visit for us. Kayla, is he likely to be successful? Well, Kelly, the U.S. delegation is lowering expectations for any increased production commitment from the Saudis directly during this trip. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan aboard Air Force One today told reporters, quote, I don't think you should expect a particular announcement here bilaterally because we believe any further action taken to ensure that there is significant, su- sufficient energy, rather, to protect the health of the global economy will be done in the context of OPEC+. President Biden meets tomorrow with Gulf leaders to discuss energy broadly. And moments ago, he met with the Saudi royal family helmed by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Peter Alexander of NBC News, representing the American media pool, asked MBS if he would apologize to the family of Jamal Khashoggi. MBS did not respond. Upon arriving in Jeddah, Biden delivered a fist bump to the crown prince, whom U.S. intelligence has tied to the killing in 2018 of the Washington Post journalist. Biden's doctors reportedly disallowed handshakes due to COVID, Kelly, but conveniently also helped the president avoid a photo op of shaking the hand of the crown prince. Yeah, we know all of these gestures. It's all part of the visit and and the power balance. Kayla, thank you very much. For more on the fallout from the president's Saudi trip, let's bring in Halima Croft. She's managing director and global head of commodity strategy at RBC and a CNBC contributor. Halima, welcome. Some of the early reporting on this does not look too promising. What are your thoughts? I mean, I think it was always going to be hard to get a commitment from the Saudis to ramp up production significantly on the back of this visit. I think OPEC would always be the forum for which the Saudis would do some type of incremental increase over the remainder of the year. The OPEC plus agreement actually extends through December. So all the stakes that now have been raised for that August 3rd OPEC meeting to see if we're actually going to get additional barrels out of the few remaining members of OPEC that have any spare supply. But wait, if we're not going to get anything out of this trip, why would the president embark on it? Well, the president is saying, and his team is saying, this is beyond oil. It's about a reset. 
in the U.S.-Saudi relationship, about America's place in the region. They'll point to the fact that you had a direct flight from Israel to Saudi Arabia. It's potentially signs of improving ties between those two countries. But I think this was the price that Biden needed to pay to potentially get additional barrels. Now, the question is, if we don't get any supply coming out of that August 3rd OPEC meeting, then I think the trip will be judged as, you know, a potential failure. But again, I don't think this is a forum to really see a significant production increase announcement. You know, so I, I sort of take your point about resetting relations, but still wonder then what the solution is for meeting the supply that's needed in global energy markets. I guess the best thing that the president can hope for is just that the price declines we've seen maybe owing to the Fed uh, stay, keep prices down where they are for some time. I mean, Biden has caught a break with the fact that we've seen fears of recession. Prices have you know, fallen you know, fairly far based on just concern in the market about demand destruction. But they have a real challenge come end of year because on December 5th, that's when the European oil embargo and a whole host of other pretty severe sanctions on Russian energy kick in. So there's going to be a real need to have additional barrels really going into Europe to backfill what's not going to be going in there from Russia come December 5th. So he does actually need to have a conversation with a few remaining countries that have spare barrels, not simply just for additional supply, but they're going to have to backfill the Russian volumes in Europe come December. What's your guess these days on oil prices, gasoline prices as we get into the fall towards the end of the year? I mean, we certainly think that this fear of recession, the news about China, potential new COVID restrictions, I mean, that is a headwind for oil, but we still think this is a relatively tight market. And again, we would also point to what is coming in December. I don't think market participants are fully pricing in the fact that we are going to have, for the first time, very serious sanctions on Russia's energy export. So I think that is something to pay attention to when we think about the overall supply and demand balance. Yeah, meanwhile, they're, you know, turning streetlights off in France and, you know, dealing with 100 degree temps in the UK. And Kelly, I would point to a very important event that's coming next week. The real question about will the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, that all important pipeline that brings Russian gas to Europe, it is down for planned maintenance. And there's real concern that the Russians will keep that pipeline offline. And that would cause a profound energy crisis in Europe. So next week, it's going to be very important to see what happens in terms of Russian gas exports to Europe. Yep, July 22nd, or as others have said, even if it comes back on intermittent you know, outages as needed, politically uh, from here on out. Uh, A dicey situation to be sure. Halima, thanks for your time today. Thank you for having me. Halima Croft of RBC Capital Markets. Meanwhile, some of the big tech names are heading higher today, but Microsoft, Alphabet, and Meta are all facing declines of about 4% this week, and analysts are turning negative on these names right into earnings. Should we be ready for some downside surprises? That's next on The Exchange. Welcome back to The Exchange. Big tech earnings kick off next week, and analysts have been getting ready by cutting their price targets on some of the biggest names. Over the last nine days, Apple's price target has been cut at Citi, Cowan, and Goldman. Microsoft's by BMO this morning plus Morgan Stanley. Similar story for Netflix and Meta and Alphabet. 
Steve Kovac is here with more. And we, I think it was Gene Munster who warned uh, a week or two ago on this show that he expects big downward revisions for tech this year. Yeah, and we saw, just like you said, just an avalanche of these over the last nine or ten days. I've been tracking them. They just keep piling up in my inbox, Every all these price target cuts. So, Kelly, this is a really good preview, though, of what we can expect from mega cap tech earnings uh, starting next week with Netflix and then the week after with all those other names. So we, let's go down the line and what, yeah. what the concerns are with Netflix first up. It's are they going to lose subscribers again? Uh, UBS really slashed their target. Uh, it was oh God, it was down from like 355 to 198 or something wow. like that for the 12 months. And they're saying, look, we're, we're expecting a subscriber loss in the U.S. and Canada again. But these other initiatives that they're doing to kind of turn things around on their subscriber front, it's going to take a year or two to pan out. That means the ad supported cheaper plans to kind of encourage people to sign up again. And the gaming thing that they've been working on, that's going to take even longer to pan out. And then you go on to Apple. Lots of things going on in Apple. Obviously, we talk about China so much, but beyond that, there's a lot of signals that app store growth is not uh, as blockbuster as it was really? uh, during the pandemic. And in fact, it might even be shrinking in China. So that's a concern there. And plus, foreign exchange headwinds also hitting Apple. And as we know, it's hitting Microsoft big time. That's the real concern for all these price target cuts with Microsoft. Yeah, and Microsoft has warned about that. I guess if we're all expecting bad news, does that lessen the odds that we that it is at least a downside surprise? I mean, it could be. That's you, it's just weird to see everybody agreeing all at once that across the board everything's going to be bad. Every player, every especially going the last earnings season, there's still tons of optimism around these names too. So, but these are going to be the questions when we listen to the Apple call and the Netflix call coming off earnings uh, in the next couple of weeks. These are the questions that all these CEOs are going to be grilled about. What What are you seeing with foreign exchange headwinds? What can we see on the macroeconomic level throughout the end of the year? These are all going to be the questions coming up for Meta and Google. By the way, it's going to. Be uh, we'll get an insight into the consumer because sure. ad spend. Absolutely. It reminds me, I think it was earlier this week, Bank of America was just pointing out with ServiceNow and some of the others that you know, software was really underperforming. And do we still view this as a post-pandemic reset, trying to figure out what that new normal is? Or what do you think might be going on here that it's affecting the category across the board? Yeah, and that's the really funny thing. I was actually talking to our executive producer, uh, Maria, about this this morning. It's like, we saw the Zooms and the likes, those, those pandemic darlings kind of go up last week, and then all of a sudden, oh, we're gonna rotate out of that go right back into big tech. I think Apple going in today was up like 12% for the month or something like that. So, I mean, these big tech names, even though they're being cut, they're still outperforming a lot of those other names that we were talking about so much during the peak of the pandemic. And maybe they had priced in what we're about to hear. Yes. And maybe now they can tell us whether this July rally is warranted. Yeah. Steve, thank you. Thank you so Our much. Steve Kovac, Happy we appreciate Friday. it. Earnings season does pick up steam next week with tons of big names reporting. What should you be doing now to get ready? We have three buys into bail on all those names next week. Well, four of them. We're back after this. Welcome back, everybody. Earnings season gets busy next week with a quarter of the Dow and an eighth of the S&P reporting. And while it can be risky to make moves ahead of earnings, it can also reap some pretty big rewards. So with that said, it's time for three buys and a bail earnings edition. Joining us with her picks is Gina Sanchez. She's Lido Advisors, chief market strategist and a CNBC contributor. Gina, great to have you. Thanks for stepping in front of the buzzsaw, so to speak. And your first name is one that Danielle Shea was a... She was warning it could be a short squeeze, i.e. was kind of positive yesterday. In other words, it's Netflix. Tell us why this one is a buy for you. 
So Netflix is a story that, you know, we've actually owned it for a while. So we have taken it in the chin. It's down 70% this year. So that's not, not been great. But remember, a lot of that came off of the sort of resetting after the, the pandemic. Um, they did see subscriber growth drop. Now they're making moves to help improve uh, or sort of get in front of all of this password sharing. They're offering sub accounts at a lower price point just to get some of that revenue in. Um, they're trying to bring ad revenue in. But for us, Netflix is really starting to see a bottom and we see more upside than downside. And so, you know, if you're looking for something that has a limited downside and a much bigger upside, Netflix as a proven giant, they have figured out how to make profits. They've figured out how to make revenues. Um, and so we think that there's uh, still a lot of room to, to go from here. All right. We're going to move on from Netflix, hit up some Johnson and Johnson. Michael Yoshikami <laughs> was positive on this one at uh, top of the hour. This one's up 4% in a down market lately. Earnings are on Thursday. What are you excited about? Well, so Johnson & Johnson for us has been a great stock that just has very limited downside. So this really is a defensive stock, right? So unlike the Netflix buy, which is about you know, limited upside, or rather sort of, you know, getting to the bottom and limited downside. This guy has limited downside. J&J &J has limited upside, limited downside. It's steady as it goes, strong revenues, maintained its margins, even in the midst of tough inflationary pressure, and their pharmaceuticals are really knocking the lights out. Um, and so we see plenty of, you know, great support for this stock, but we also think that when the markets fall out of bed, it's a great defensive stock to own. All right, let's move Move along to my favorite sector to talk about the home builders because the PEs are so low they are either crazy or the, or the world is crazy and maybe both. Um, DR Horton is the name for you. They're reporting next week. The shares are down more than 30% this year. It's a sub five PE. You're a buyer here. Yeah, no, we actually, and we really like this stock. We own it right now. And this is a stock um, that has the, a really great long-term story. I mean, there was a great article um, just recently that highlighted the shortage of homes, not just on the coasts, which we've seen a shortage of homes there for some time, but that shortage of homes is already, is leaking into this, the center uh, of the United States, which is, and, you know, D.R. Horton, they traded a slight premium relative to the other home builders, but they're active in 32 states. And they really are playing across the spectrum from affordable housing all the way to luxury housing. And so we think that the long-term story on this is very, very strong. And this is a company that just has an enormous profit margin. And they've maintained that profit margin even as input costs have risen. All right, so sticking with it. Now, the one you're bailing on, drum roll please, is Snap. Now, much like Netflix, it's down 70% this year. So Netflix is still okay in your book, but Snap, you say earnings and profitability, watch out. That's right, right? The difference between those two stocks, Netflix makes money. Snap is still figuring out its revenue game. They haven't paved a path to profitability, and the market, I don't think, is going to let them pave that path. Um, and, you know, if, if you, granted, they don't have a terrible balance sheet. I would say that, you know, Snap isn't <clears throat> all around a, a terrible company, but, you know, they are having a lot of trouble generating revenue. Their new Snapchat Plus just didn't really do much in terms of revenue. And um, on the whole, it's been a disappointment. And, and my view on Snapchat was that it was always going to have a tough road to profitability. And so far, it's proven that out. And so if, you know, Netflix has a lot of upside, I say Snap really has nowhere to go. All right. So let's end things, if I can, by circling back to what we were just speaking 
talking about with Steve Kovac. And SNAP kind of plays into this theme. Big tech in general, seeing a ton of downward analyst revisions. What do you expect from the space? Well, you know, here's the thing about about big tech right now is that a lot of the stories that that sort of underpin big tech, like the cloud play, that's not going away. You know, I don't think Microsoft is going away anytime soon. You know, each one of these also has a different story. Apple has really been suffering with supply chain constraints. Well, those supply chain constraints slowly are going to continue to get better, right? That has to be a benefit to Apple. Um, you look at, at um, you know, Google uh, and, and there, you know, there the, the advertising market is the big problem. Right, which is one of those things that, for example, works against Snapchat. Uh, but um, you know that that advertising model is, goes away. But the cloud play that's still there. Um, there's still a lot of room for a lot of these names uh, to continue to dominate. Uh, so I think some of the earnings revisions is just trying to get ahead of of an expected mild recession. Yeah. Uh, and so you know that's really what that's about. But the long-term plays on most of these stories are still very positive. All right, it's a tricky time. Time of year. Gina, thanks very much. We appreciate it. Have a great weekend. Thanks. You too, Kelly. Thank you, Gina Sanchez. The Dow with a nice gain today, 580 points, but still slightly lower for the week. Getting a boost from United Health this afternoon, a big jump after their earnings results. We're going to hear what the CEO had to say about the company's hot quarter next on The Exchange. Welcome back, everybody. Before we go, take a look at shares of United Health, up nearly 5% today and adding more than 170 points to the Dow. They reported this morning, and our Bertha Coombe sat down with the CEO. She joins us now from Eden Prairie, Minnesota. Bertha? Hey, Kelly. Yeah, it was a big beat on both the top and the bottom line. And profits were really helped by uh, lower medical costs. So far, they haven't seen as much hospitalization with the latest wave of uh, the Omicron variant. And that is creating a halo effect today when it comes to the insurance sector. United Health, being the biggest insurer in the nation, kind of sets the tone as we await to hear from some of the others. Company also announcing today a new initiative on their fully insured group plans. Well, they will offer zero copay and zero out-of-pocket costs at all, no deductible, on insulin, on EpiPens, on naloxone to reverse uh, opioid overdoses, and also on albuterol for asthma inhalers. And Andrew Witte tells us this is part of their whole effort to try to do better value-based care. We're moving to a zero copay and zero deductible, by the way. So this is really zero out of pocket for those patients mm. for the United Healthcare fully insured group. This affects about 800,000 people. We think that's a really important thing for us to move forward on, both from a care, making sure those folks have the prescription they need when they need it. We also want to recognize it's a tough environment for people. If we can help, we want to try and lean forward and help for them. It's part of his whole sort of ESG outlook, Kelly, you know, trying to do more health equity. And he's hopeful that he can encourage self-insured employers to do the same for their workers. Back to you. Bertha, thank you very much. And, you know, I mean, this is after health care remains uh, in the policy crosshairs, potentially, with the ACA subsidies and drug pricing caps maybe being the only things that move forward uh, in D.C. this year. 
It is. And I think that's one of the things that they sort of want to lead and be part of the conversation and say, look, we can be part of the solution here. If people have coverage, we can move them into plans and nudge them to take better care of themselves. Yeah, true. Absolutely. Bertha, thank you very much. Bertha Coombs reporting. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.